Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 189 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron 1.0, and with me, as usual, is my best mate, Patch. Hey, everyone. And Aaron 2.0. Howdy. For the month of September, we asked our Feelin' Film Patreon supporters to choose from five rom-coms and... This sweet Richard Curtis film that revolves around time travel won pretty handily. So let's just go ahead and dive right in and get to discussing it as best we can while we're watching Aaron dance uh, and being very distracting. So listeners, you don't have to deal with that. So you, <laughs> I don't know if that's a benefit uh, or if you're missing out. But Sounds we, like they're missing out. <laughs> they may be. Well, spoiler warning, so as always, we will be discussing this film in depth. Uh, there are some twists and turns to it, so if you haven't seen it, we highly recommend it. We all are fans of the film. We'll tell you that up front. Go check it out, About Time. I think it's on Netflix still right now, so you can watch it for free if you have a Netflix subscription, and then you can come back and listen to us. All right, Aaron 2.0, we are going to kick things off with you and your one-word takeaway. Endearing. Like, that's really the best word that I can come up with, only because the movie, it was such a new take for a romantic comedy to have elements of sci-fi in it. And I think that that's what I loved so much, is that it didn't, by adding this new layer, which I'm not saying it was the first time it had ever been done, but by adding this new layer, it didn't take away anything from the movie. And that's what I loved about it. It was just very endearing. I would have to agree with that. Was this your first time seeing it, by the way? Oh, no. No, no, no. Okay. I, I didn't know if it was or not. Patrick, what's your one more takeaway? And also answer that question as well. Is it your first time seeing it or have you seen it multiple times? No, this is my first time. And so I absolutely adored watching this. Um, Rachel McAdams is a, is a favorite of mine. And um, I'm going to get his first name wrong. Dom, Domhnall Gleeson? Is that Domhnall? Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Anyway. Domhnall. Yeah, he's become one of my favorite actors in the last several years with Ex Machina and Black Mirror. So seeing him in this, I think, was a really fun comedic take on his character or on from his acting point of view. But the word that I picked was charming. And I think that as I was watching the movie, that word just kept coming to mind, just how charming the story is, how charming the use of time travel is, how charming the relationships not only between Tim and Mary, but also between his dad and Kit Kat and his mom. All of these these characters that come together that make this movie more than just about these two. Everything about it was charming. I love, love, love British sense of humor. And this hit all the notes for me. Well, my one more takeaway is effective <laughs> in kind of is a 180 from the last discussion that we had about Ad Astra when my one more takeaway was ineffective. And, you know, I'm really, really glad because instead of struggling to feel anything or relate like I did recently, this movie has me full of emotion throughout it. 
I resonate very deeply with Tim's desires to use time travel for the purposes of creating uh, this romantic love that he's always dreamed of. And I'd be lying if I said that probably isn't the exact path that I would take as well, if given the chance. But what I really love about this particular film is the way it balances comedy, drama, romance, and the science fiction of time travel into this package that feels really familiar, but then ultimately, I think, flips the script on us and puts the focus on familial relationships, making them as important or more so than the romantic one that we think is at the heart of the story. It's just so refreshing and really welcome. And this isn't the only time, (laughs) pun intended, that time travel has been used to try and make the statement that we need to enjoy the present. But it might just be the one that has the biggest overall impact on me personally. It really is uh, profound for me, and it's extremely touching. And it just makes me want to stop what I'm doing and go call my dad. All right, well, About Time is definitely thought of as a rom-com. That's why we're here. We're doing a rom-com today. We're going to do a rom-com next week. We're going to talk about rom-coms in bonus content after we're done here. That's a romance and a comedy put together, simply put. My question for you guys is how do you feel this movie balances romance with its message of family importance and the family relationships that we see throughout with Tim and his dad, Tim and his sister. It's very unique, but what do you think makes it stand out as special with regards to the traditional rom-com genre? Aaron 2.0. I think the thing that I loved about it is that it really made people kind of, or some people, um, question their definition of romance. And I think that that is probably one of my favorite things about it is that we generally associate romance with a level of sexual attraction or dating that you have with a partner or somebody that you would like to become your partner when really like romance is just a feeling of excitement, anxiousness, um, the unknown, and it's associated with love, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I don't know what other word besides sexual, because I don't want to use intimate because I feel like intimacy is also can be with between friends and family. But like, it doesn't have to always be associated with being in love with somebody, but just having the feelings of love with somebody. And I think that's the thing that I loved about it is that I would definitely call this a rom-com because there is a romance and a level of intimacy that he has with his father that you don't see in a lot of movies. And the fact that the root of this movie is taught, like it shows him going back in time to create or connect with Rachel McAdams character, but ultimately like, when he goes back in time, he doesn't actually change. Like he could have easily gone back in time even further and made sure that the play didn't get messed up and then still make it to the dinner. But instead he chose to, he chose his romance with friends and relationships with friends first and then found ways to still piece his romance with Rachel McAdams character interwoven with that and that's what I loved is that it wasn't just all like the notebook where it was like the ups and downs of being in a romantic relationship with a partner they showed so many different like the romance that you show a sibling the romance that you like your first love is completely different than your forever love so I think what I loved about this movie is that it showed so many definitions for the word romance or romantic that it's it it covered a lot of bases that it could have just easily ignored and it chose not to 
I also enjoyed the fact that it challenges the audience on that definition and it elevates those relationships beyond just the two main characters to give value to them because part of what makes Tim who he is is his relationship with his family. That's who Mary falls in love with. Him dependent on his family or him connected with his family. Although she doesn't meet them until later on in the in the story, he is an extension of his dad and his mom and his sister and his uncle. From the very beginning, he is describing, and I love, love, love this part, he is describing each and every member of his close-knit family, and he gives them all this great moment in his in his monologue. And in particular, his sister, he says, I think I adore her mo- most of all because of these different reasons, but it doesn't deter from how he feels romantically, as you mentioned, in that sense, with his family and how much he values them, how they have tea on the beach every day, no matter if it's sunny or hot or cold, there's this tradition that he fully embraces. And it's what I think we as an audience fall in love with about him. I also like the fact that the movie challenges us with the fact that the pursuit of Mary is not the central point and that the twist or the, what you would call probably the second act conflict, the thing that goes, oh my gosh, what is going to happen now? That usually takes place in a lot of Hallmark movies or in your typical romantic comedy where a truth gets told and there is a conflict within the relationship. That never happens. At least I didn't see it. If it was more subtle, I didn't pick up on it. But I like that. I was actually waiting for it. I was like, what's going to happen? Is he going to screw something up when he goes back in time? Is she going to fall out of love with him? Is he going to end up with Charlotte? And the fact that the movie continuously thwarts that expectation, almost giving us a new meaning of what romantic comedy is or should be. I, I like this take, independent of what I like about romantic comedies in general. But this is one that will stand out to me for those reasons that you mentioned, Aaron, as well as like what I picked up on it. Yeah, I don't think that it does have anything like that. And it's one of the reasons that I'm a big, big fan of it as well is there is no betrayal. There is no making out with Charlotte or even just, you know, just a little bit doing something that you have to hide from your significant other and then apologize for later there's no conflict in the relationship like that they definitely have conflict within their decision making process what they're going to do with their lives you know uh, there's a great scene at the dinner table that i absolutely love with mary and her parents where she just won't shut up and you start to learn a little bit about. oh my gosh that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie isn't it absolute favorite so good so good and it's just it's so cute and it's so it feels so realistic Right. So natural. And that's a conflict in a relationship in a way, but it's not major. And so we understand that marriages will struggle and relationships will have issues, but they don't always have cheating. But if you watched a rom-com every day of the week, you would probably see six out of seven other than this one that did have that in them in some format. And so I really like that. I also like the fact that we get to see babies in this version of a rom-com and a lot of times we don't get that far in the relationship. The, the ultimate goal is being together in the quote unquote committed relationship. Like that's what people see as the top of the movie rom-com pyramid. But in this one, we actually get to see kids and we get to see kids that aren't just there 
or show, but like they're an actual part, not necessarily, I can see how someone might push back on that because we don't get to know the children, but the children are an integral part of his decision making because he has to make decisions about how far he can go back in time based on whether or not he's going to undo the kids that he has. I, I can't even imagine that. And every time I watch this movie, I gasp a little when that happens. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, wait. Ugh. The look on his face, though, when he picks that baby up, like, who the heck are you? Like, where did <laughs> my child go? Right, now? right, exactly. And so I, it adds a little bit of an element to this one, another family element to it that is different than just the sexual romance like you were kind of describing there, Aaron. And I, I just, for all those reasons, I think it's great. The relationship between him and Kit Kat is absolutely just the sweetest thing. Uh, Patrick, you texted me while you were watching it and you were like, I wish I had a sister like Kit Kat. And I was like, yeah, me too. Um, it's just, it's so awesome to see someone in any movie anywhere doing selfless acts for someone else when many people would say that person doesn't necessarily deserve it even. And the I best think... part, oh, oh sorry. Oh, I was no, going to say ahead. the best part to me of their entire relationship is the fact that it leads somewhere to where Kit Kat says, I'm going to take responsibility. Yeah. I love that. Ultimately they realize time travel can't fix this. Her, yeah. her ownership is the only thing that can change this. For the most part, we only see Tim changing major situations in his life um, outside of a few of the comedic mundane things. And I mean, that's because we don't want a six hour movie where we see every single time that he uses time travel for the entirety of his life. And the mundane comedic ways are usually pretty hilarious, like with Charlotte and not being able to understand what the word girlfriend means in the right context. (laughs) That scene slays me every time as well because he just—it's so awkward. It's like he oh, plays just awkward perfectly. It's like just, he is the perfect awkward, yeah. And yeah, it, I mean, he I, even was awkward in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's great, and that scene just—it makes you feel awkward with him. Like you're sitting there next to him and his best friend, and you're like, just stop, just stop. And then when the moment happens where. He sees her after like the fourth time. And he says, you know what? It's not really worth it. <laughs> just like, yes, good. And then she and shows just, up and he's like, and no, just, come on. I can't get rid of it. So those are like fun comedy pieces to me. And I love the way that we use time travel to do that. But for the most part, his decision making is you know, pretty important. He's trying to make sure that the meeting gets set up with Mary so that he can still actually have this progression that he wants. Things like that. Um, obviously going back in time to try and fix Kit Kat at one point. My question for but, you guys. I mean, his, his, the fact that he still goes back to that first night, though, because we got to talk about Kirby in this. Like, her role in this movie was the perfect best friend role, in my opinion. Like, she played it so perfectly because they didn't really try to adjust her character to make her a great best friend. She was a realistic best friend. And that's what I loved about the whole thing is that she was seriously like, I am not going to date this really creepy guy so that you can date the really nice guy. And then even when he like hijacks the party and goes back in time and tries to re-meet her, she's just kind of like, yeah, I figured I probably met you drunk somewhere and that's where I invited you. Do you want a hot dog? Like, it's just so awkwardly real. And that's what I love about this movie is like, back to what you were saying before is like, 
sexual elements aside, they showed what actually keeps a relationship going versus the hot and heavy that draws what I'm assuming they believe people come to the movies for. And that's what I loved about this movie is that I felt like there was not a single character in this movie that was very um, put on. Like everybody seemed like you all had this one friend that could have easily fit into a lot of these categories. And there's a great, there are two great examples of that. And they're both ironically sexually driven. One is the night that he has sex with her multiple times, you know, and gets better each time, which I think is funny, but you don't see anything. I mean, you see the aftermath and you kind of put two and two or three and three, whatever, how many together. But the other scene that I really thought was three and three, my goodness. Well, three, three times, you know, he had sex with her three times, you know, and got better anyway. But the other scene that I thought was pretty fantastic was when she was trying to get him to make decisions about the wedding. And she said, okay, for every decision you make, I'll take a piece of clothing off. And in any other movie that could have been played up in a more sexualized way, but it was playful. And I think that tone in that scene personified what the overall tone was trying to be, which is this is what comfortable relationships should be like, where they can be endearing. They can be, they can be charming. They can be all these things, but they can also be very comfortable where you don't, you show that comfort level in to people. I've been going through the, old 90210 episodes and I'm frustrated at how easy it is for two people to have sex with each other that don't know each other. And there it, it's unrealistic. And I'm not saying that it's realistic in here, but it feels more grounded the way this relationship evolves and the nature of their intimacy evolves because it comes from a historical place as opposed to like a, Hey, you're beautiful. I'm beautiful. Let's get together and we'll make beautiful babies that you'll never see because it's all about our relationship. And having this movie do what it does makes me feel like, you know what, this is a real relationship. And it, I think it reaches its full peak when he runs from Charlotte and goes and proposes to, to Mary. That was almost my connecting point because that made me proud. Not that he turned away from Charlotte, but because being with her reminded him how deeply, um, in love he was with with Mary and then the way he proposed to her felt very natural it wasn't fanfare in fact it was played up uh where he was trying to make it big fanfare and she says can you turn the radio off as he's leaving and it turns out there's a there's a band in in the living room that she didn't want all those things work together for me as a as an audience to really connect with those characters and not just kind of superficially follow along with their story well, we agree that Tim and his usage of time travel is both funny and for the most part, well used. My question is, what would you use time travel for? Because in this context, we have a great story up front where his dad is explaining to him they're going or they're having a conversation about what he might choose to use it for. And we get to learn something about his dad that's really important that he says he used it to read, which I thought of Aaron immediately. And how I would 100%. Not, not be shocked 100%. if Aaron said that that was her answer so she could just read every book that existed. And I thought that was awesome. That was a really cool and unique thing for someone to choose to do and use their over and over and over experience for. But what would you use it for outside of money? Because I think we all would have that temptation 
But is there anything outside of money and maybe outside of love that you would want to attain by having Tim's power? And Aaron, you can say reading if that really is your answer to you. I will uh, not limit myself. And what I will say is knowledge. So I have always been somebody that is knowledge is power. I'm a Ravenclaw. It's just it's it's what motivates me and gets me out of bed in the morning. I will never be able to be one of those people that just sits back and rests on the knowledge that she has. I love learning new things. I like to call myself a serial hobbyist. So I would probably use it to travel a lot more and learn a lot about uh, cultures from both an in-depth perspective and a historical perspective. Um, there are a lot of things that I could give a Miss America answer about. Like I would love to, you know, potentially like stop major events from happening or be able to warn people. And then you run, you know, you've got the butterfly effect that happens and everything like that. But at the end of the day, the, I know we're going to talk about it later, but the advice that he gives about living in the moment and stuff like that, I think is very important. But at the, if you are, I think what I love about Bill Nye's character is the relationship that he has with his wife, because him disappearing forever into a room and reading or, when he goes back in time and he like uh, hangs out with his kids on the beach and he reads like there are moments like that where I'm like, I can think of so many new skills and so many languages that I could learn just by being able to have uh, like everybody's always like, you have the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce. And I'm like, yeah, well, Beyonce doesn't really have to do a lot of the things that I have to do. And her life seems a lot easier at times. And so for me, it's like to have more hours in the day to gain more knowledge, I think benefits not just me but the people that i would be able to affect with that knowledge i would probably tack onto that and say gaining that knowledge would be beneficial and i would want that as long as i could find practical application for it i'm, I'm an epistemologist i love knowledge i love learning new things but where i fail is that i get really lazy in the application and that i could be a trivia hoarder where i i know a lot but i don't necessarily apply it. And so that sounds fantastic. That <laughs> well, sounds amazing. It, it sounds lazy is what it is. And that's, that's kind of what I, I try. It's, it's a character trait in me that I, I feel like is a flaw because I will learn something, but I won't put boots to the ground to make it purposeful to either myself or to somebody else. And I think if I had the time, literally, to go back and learn something, I'd also want to find opportunities to use that knowledge to do what Tim does and and make it applicable and make it purposeful for somebody else to give fulfillment to somebody else. I, I think seeing him not even hesitate to help out, um, I think is it his uncle? I can't remember who it is. It's the the playwright. Um or seemingly not hesitate saying, you know, I'll be right back. And he goes, what are you going to do? He's like, no, no, I'll, I'll do something. And he, he helps him out and he does it not once, but twice. That's the kind of motivation that I have to do better or to know more or to gain knowledge. But if I'm not actually applying it, it feels a little bit worthless to me. I mean, it, it might feel good to me to know all that, but if I have nobody to share it with and nobody's changed because of that knowledge, I really feel like it's a waste. And so if I not only have the time to go and gain that knowledge, but also have that time to actually apply it and make a difference for one other person, two other people, whatever, I, that's what I would love to do. 
Well, I'm going to give the shallow answer then because you guys have given the smart and like responsible and inspirational answers. But I have friends that I talk about this with all the time. You know, what if we had an extra 24 hours? What would we do? When are we going to invent the ability to have that 24 hours? And I'm not going to lie. I would probably use it primarily on hobbies, but not on hobbies for knowledge, but on hobbies for enjoyment. So I would want to sneak in as many movies as I wanted to see, and I would want to play all of the video games that I would want to play. And then I would still use my regular daytime my i would largely live my life i think in the same way for the most part i wouldn't necessarily change things on a daily basis but i would want to allow myself the ability to play things that i am never going to get the opportunity to play because there are just too many great things out there and the responsibilities i have don't allow for it or the same goes for movies and then i would be able to enjoy podcasting and here and now I wouldn't necessarily have to redo that I might go back in time and do some editing that way to uh, save myself some trouble (laughs) practical application but uh for the most part yeah I'd want to live my life normally and I would want to I would just be selfishly sucking up all the hobby time that I could get probably Uh, my first answer would also most likely be to find a romantic love interest like Tim I really do relate with him in that way so I think that's sweet. But it's, it's a fun thing to think about, uh, especially since we all know that we're never going to actually get this and, and we're not going to have to come to these decisions. I think the thing that concerns me about like using it for romantic purposes is that the mistakes are what make relationships endearing and they're what make relationships endure. So they endear and endure. So for me, it's like, yeah, I get that you want to keep yourself from having romantic mishaps, but sometimes the romantic mishaps that are embarrassing like those are long-running jokes that you have in your relationship and I do love that Tim doesn't try to make things perfect in his relationship by any means like he doesn't do that but I also think like okay well practical like practicality if we all had this in real life like the people that would use it for romantic partners I feel like they would use it to like get out of really big arguments or like avoid making like embarrassing or like offhand comments and it's like But those are the things that show you who you actually are. So then if you use that power, are you just faking it in that entire relationship because you think you want to be with that person? That's compartmentalizing a relationship at that point. I think you've got, it's the Nintendo Switch, Super Nintendo mentality where you have the ability to reverse and fix your quote mistake instead of learning from that and being able to grow from those mistakes so you can go back and say, oh yeah, I remember when I messed up on that. I won't do that again. But you're right, um, Aaron. The the fact is, the the quirks about my wife are the things that I love about her. And there's a, a great scene in Goodwill Hunting where that's per, you know through uh, Robin Williams' character, he's telling the story about his late wife about how she she farts in bed, and he just found that incredibly adorable. But nobody else would because they haven't lived with this woman for as many years as he has. And if you don't have that history, if both of you don't have that history, you know, obviously if you have the ability to control time, you have that history, but your partner doesn't. Now you're actually cheating that person because they don't have the luxury of experiencing those things with you. Yeah. And that actually ties into a question I wanted to ask you about the ethics of 
the entire situation here because it's fun to watch. It's sweet to think about. It's endearing. It's charming. And it's great to know that Tim seemingly makes the best possible choices we see as, or what we see as being positive choices. And it ends up really great for him and his wife. They're happy. They have wonderful children, etc. But ethically speaking, is there something that you would consider wrong about this? And essentially what Tim does in the beginning, kind of redoing things until the love interest chooses you, because we do go through several instances where Tim is not connecting with Mary and Tim has to lie to get married. That's the one thing that sticks out is he has to fake being a fan of who is it? Kate Moss. I think it is in order to get her attention. So on some level, does that make the relationship not real? Do you think? Personally, I think that any type of time travel is unethical. Um, I think, and I, that's just the logical part of me. I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it. I'm not saying that, you know, changing things isn't a noble pursuit when they're, like you said, when they're selfless acts, when some of them are selfless acts. But at the end of the day, I think that changing your fate to fit your narrative when not everybody has the privilege of that is unethical. And I think that like there are moments, the only thing that I like is how the story actually does round out because the way that it's presented is go back, don't change anything, but just see the things that you missed because you were so focused on what was happening right then and there. But it's ironic because it's like two different ways of living in the moment. There's the way to live in the moment when negative things impact you. And I think that's always, that's always what makes me laugh when people give you the advice like, oh, just be present, live in the moment. Well, okay, well, the present sucks. So I don't really want to live in this moment. Thank you. So it's like, there are moments like that. But I think the fact that he goes back in time so that he can hold on to those lighter moments in dark days is great. Except for the fact that like, your wife doesn't have that luxury. So if you're just the happy go lucky person and she's always a bit or Betty or she's angry because she has to do X, Y, and Z with the kids. Like, I think it all depends on your personality because if I had somebody where I was consistently or regularly frustrated because of something and my partner was always in a good mood because they got the time travel and go back and see the nice things, I'd be really mad all the time. Like I'd probably be in a worse mood. So for me, it's, all of time travel is unethical, even if you use it for selfless means. However, it doesn't mean that, I mean, we all do unethical things every day. So it's like, it's not life ending. I think, you know, if you went back in time and stopped your father from being murdered, okay, I wouldn't really call that necessarily unethical, but I don't think that it's right because who you are is shaped by the fact that your father was murdered or X, Y, and Z. Well, and to take Tim and Mary's relationship, her obsession with Kate Moss was not a deal breaker for their relationship. And obviously the narrative didn't necessarily make that a priority or a big plot point. It wasn't something that created a conflict in their lives. And I think on a bigger scale, what we have is we all lie. We all present a version of ourselves that isn't the full version because we can't. There's there's never going to be a moment where we're like, here's the complete me, because there's always going to be a part of you, whether you want to or not, that you're hiding intentionally or unintentionally. That's what I think the benefit of long relationships are is that you're slowly discovering more about your significant other and they're slowly discovering more about you, good and bad. And while Tim, as an example, 
deceived Mary by having an interest in Kate Moss, it didn't negate the fact that he was just in love with her. Now, I will say that time travel screwed that up because he already had history with her. He had a reason to pursue her. But as they connected and their relationship thereafter didn't matter how they got together. Their relationship was defined by who they were in those moments and in the days, weeks, months, years after as they had more kids and they got to know um, the extended family and develop those relationships. And I think that's a true statement. I can tell you when I first met my wife and it was a disastrous first time meeting, but I got a redo and it wasn't because I went back through time. It was because God saw fit that I should meet her again under different circumstances. Are you secretly a time traveler? And this was your choice of a film. I plead the fifth at this point, (laughs) but in any case, she knows my history. So obviously I'm not a time traveler because she knows who I was, but the guy that she fell in love with is not the guy that she met initially. And I'm grateful for that because I had growing up to do, I had a life to live and mistakes to own up to before it was the best time for us to actually be together. And then when we got together, we fell in love, we got married. And over the last 11 years, we've dealt with a whole host of challenges as a couple. But those challenges have defined and have deepened our affection towards each other. And I think that about time hints at that in a lot of ways, using time travel as a means to say, okay, maybe I didn't get it right the first time, or maybe even the second or third. But this relationship is worth pursuing, even if the methodology is unethical and illogical. Yeah, I I actually don't have a big problem with it at all because of the fact that Tim meets Mary and it's very legitimate the first time. If we saw him meet this woman who never showed any interest in him and he then began to redo time in order to find a way to get her to show interest in him and to woo her, I would think that there was an ethical problem and it would actually probably have hindered my enjoyment of the film and my ability to root for them as a couple. But because his first meeting with her is completely legit and she does give him her number, she has made the decision in the very beginning of this film to pursue a further relationship with this man. Him going back to make sure that still happens, even with the new change of having helped Harry in the play, I don't think is unethical. I think he's going back to just get that same moment back, but it's already happened. And you're not taking that away from her or faking it because she's made that choice. On some level, she's already made the decision that she is interested and she wanted to give him her number. And so I feel like if she didn't have, if she'd never done that, then it would be a lot more unethical. You're not agreeing. Do you, I, I heard your. Do you, do you, I just, uh, like, I guess for me, it also comes down to the fact that, okay, when he went back and changed things, then she got into another relationship. So at what point does it actually yeah. stop being ethical just because he selfishly wants her for himself versus this other guy who don't get me wrong. The other guy was a total douche. A douche. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like she also made the choice to pursue something with that guy. For all we know, when she gave him her like her number, she could have also still been seeing that other guy. 
like we don't actually know, but he selfishly just assumed that being with him is going to be her best bet. And again, it obviously works out for the, their benefit, but if he did not have that luxury of being able to time travel for that or like time travel to find a different way of meeting her at that party, then it's just like you you potentially have stripped her of this opportunity where she could have also done some growing and some maturing and learning. And even if she had still ended up with Tim, like you said, you got to redo later with your wife. Like he didn't even give life the opportunity to have that moment because he wanted Mary. And again, it's romantic when you're watching it. It's not sleazy or skeezy in any way, which I absolutely, like you said, it would have very much hindered my enjoyment of the film had it been that way. But I do feel like there is a method of, if he had just gone back in time and had like joked about being Kate Moss's number one fan and met at the museum, that would have been one thing. But then he took it a step further when he found out that he, she specifically met this guy instead of meeting him and was like, no, I'm the better of the two choices. That's the only place where I will draw that line in what you said, Aaron. I will relent to that because I agree with you. I'd forgotten about that little piece because guy's such a douche. And deserved it. But you're right. You're absolutely right from an ethical <laughs> standpoint. Can you tell me exactly where this happened? Tell me, you know, when did this whole magical thing take place? Yeah. What was the. T- <laughs> that sounds so creepy. If you don't no, know exactly. She's like outside my apartment. Yes, but where where exactly is your apartment? What time like, was it? What time was that? And then she gives it to him. That's the oh my gosh, part. She's yeah. like, oh, hey, stranger in the museum, this is my exact address. Please come find me here where I live by myself. Was, it's fun, it's yeah. fun watching this, and every time I watch it, I have forgotten that Margot Robbie and Vanessa Kirby are in this, because this was kind of before either one of them blew up, and it's just so fun to see them in supporting roles like this without the focus being on them as it is nowadays. I mean, I guess Vanessa Kirby's still more of a supporting character, but I, I just, I love, love, love them in this movie. This well, movie has a fantastic cast, let's just be real about it, like... Yeah. For a, well, I don't want to say low budget, but for a relatively smaller cast rom-com, like, this isn't exactly, like, The Notebook or, like, wasn't going to be a story that was going to change the world of romantic comedies. They had a stellar cast. I'll watch anything that Bill Nighy's in, like, hands down. And anything that he's in, I am 100% on board with. And there have been some terrible ones in the past, but I do not regret a single one of them. I enjoy watching him do his craft so dang much that I I just I even like the fact that he's able to do it and he enjoys it and he has a physical ailment because I don't want to call it a handicap because it's not but that he has a genetic condition and that every role that he does he can get away with only using two or three fingers and be perfectly fine because he doesn't have a choice he has like a genetic condition where he can only use three of his fingers and nobody seems to care because you don't notice it you just think of these gesturing really weirdly. But, like, this cast is absolutely fantastic. Like, uh, Donal is, like, like you said, he does awkward so well. So, so well that you just want to, like, hold him and put him in your pocket. Like, Rachel McAdams was born to play a quirky girl with a weird fringe. Like, his his friend Jay, oh my gosh, talk about skis. Talk about skis, but does it so well. Kit Kat, probably one of the best cast roles in the entire movie. She is unbelievable. And watching her go through the spiral of depression and PTSD and what it's like, like living and loving an addict or living and loving somebody that has, that is very, very toxic for you and having to go through that, like 
personally hit home. And for me, like watching her go down and then go right back up on her own was like a huge thing for me. Like the movie is, there's just so many layers, so many layers. Well, when you mentioned Bill Nighy, I'm glad you did because I agree. And I, I think he is absolutely phenomenal in this film. I mean, he he's great in everything, like you said, but he really is something special to remember in this movie. And I only know him as Tim's dad. I don't even know if he has a name that's mentioned in the movie. It's not. It's just Tim's bad. dad, um, which I think is an interesting choice and probably an intentional one that that's his role in this story is Tim's dad. And it's a, an important one. But one of the things that I'm sure could have been easily our connecting point, he offers this very powerful piece of advice that you referenced earlier, Aaron. And he tells Tim this right after telling him about his acquisition of cancer and that he is dying. Tim's narrating as he does. And he says, and so he told me his secret formula for happiness. Part one of the two part plan was that I should just get on with ordinary life, living it day by day like anyone else. But then came part two of dad's plan. He told me to live every day again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. I wonder what you guys thought of this, because we can obviously not time travel, but is there some application of this concept, this lesson that his dad is trying to teach him through this advice that we can take away? To a certain extent, yes. Um, I think that it's the same advice that we all have been getting our entire lives is live in the moment. But again, I don't think that I think that what the difference between this and the other movies that tell you to like be present is it really does talk about and I think it has way more to do with how they show it than it does how they talk about it. Because watching him smile more or notice like the grocery store or the lunch clerk smiling at him and say like, Oh, are you having a great day? And like, or enjoying the weather? Like it's, it's, it shows you what life could be like if you notice more of the small, small, small things. It's not like notice that somebody goes out of their way to help you with this, but it really does talk about how like you just see how somebody's face can change when you recognize something very small and what they did. Or like when he writes the note on the back of that notepad to cheer up his super freaking dorky friend that he works with. Oh my gosh, that guy. Oh that guy that was well cast too roger like it's i mean yeah rory yeah i love when he forgets his own name (laughs) (laughs) hi i'm roger no that's not your name (laughs) um it's just it's i think the the movie does a really great job of showing not telling and i think that in that closing monologue that's a lot of what you see is like i mean it even jokes about like her saying that she wants her safety baby which I joke about because I've always said that people should have two kids because in case one's a mess up, like the second one is, is your safety baby. And when they said that in the movie, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's mine. But like, she wants a third one for that reason. I'm like, dude, you've already, you've already called the lineup. Like if one of those kids is a screw up, having a third's not going to change anything. But then like the next shot is her just like super pregnant. It's like, it's just talking about enjoying those small quirky moments of life. And I think that's what I really love about that advice is it's less about just live in the moment and more about like truly see people when you're moving through your life. I would tack on to that, that I agree to an extent, and I may just retranslate this and saying the same thing. 
I think about my son who is always on. He's six and a half years old and he appropriately enough doesn't know when to stop talking or when to stop just being loud and just constantly making noise. And I don't ever want to squash that because that's who he is and that's how he's expressing himself. And he's always wanting to tell stories and he's always wanting to show mom and dad stuff. As we get older, we recognize, well, this is a personal perspective. I recognize that I don't have, I don't have to be that way, that we don't have to be that way as adults. We don't have to always be on. We don't always have to be performing for each other. And that sometimes it's appropriate just to sit and breathe and be in that moment. And as you mentioned, Aaron, the, the movie does a great job at showing that. And I think one of the great moments is when Tim is, uh, when, when his dad passes away and he time travels back to that one moment where he's reading Moby Dick, I think, is it? It's Melville, I think. And Tim just sits down and listens to him read. Yes, because he wants to be close to his dad, but I think it's because he wants his dad to recognize that he values what his dad does in that moment. Um, going back to my relationship with my wife, I don't like yard work. I would be much happier if we had a house that had a paved yard and not grass or flowers or anything because it's a pain in the rear, especially when you have a yard that you can't keep up with because of drainage issues. My wife, on the other hand, loves it. She loves getting out there, planting flowers, um, knowing that they're going to be pulled up six months from now to make way for new flowers. I'm thinking, what a waste of money, tongue in cheek. But I see how she's out there doing that. And what gives her pleasure and what makes me happy, what fulfills me, what, what actually makes my heart full is when I sit down next to her with my knees on the ground, pulling up sod and putting flowers in the ground next to her because I know it makes her happy. And those are quiet moments. Typically they're with my, when my son is with my parents because he's, you know, usually doing obnoxious things. But I think it's those types of moments where we don't have the ability to replay days and to observe things as closely. But I think the point of that is also to slow down and pay attention, but to also pay attention to others, not just be observers of what's going on around you, but being a slight participant in somebody else's day. And I think that the way that Tim smiled at his dad when he was reading, the way that he interacted with the the deli cashier, those things make a difference. And I think that Real happiness is articulated in this movie really well because it it's personified in the fact that when we impact others and make them happier, it does something to us. And and Tim's reaction to her smiling and the way in which he th- uh, makes his friend laugh during the meeting, all those things go a long way to mutually make us happy and the people that we're impacting. So I think that's part of what the movie is trying to say is your life is able to make an impact. It doesn't have to be a huge thing, but as long as it's impacting someone, even in small ways, it can bring happiness to you. I would agree completely with 
everything that both of you are saying. Um, I think that the power is also in like showing it to us. I think there's something very different about that than being told, like you said, Aaron, just focus on today, live in the present. There are a lot of cool phrases and buzzwords that we throw around all the time, but they just go in one ear and out the other. There's no application tied to that. And by seeing someone go through a day one way and then go through it another way and make different choices or approach things differently, it helps us to imagine what we might do in the moment to be present, so to speak. I mean, it's not like Tim wasn't necessarily present in the moment, but I think that there is a level of enjoyment that he allowed himself to have in his redo day that he wasn't taking with him. And and his dad says that. He says, let go of the tensions and the worries and the stress and enjoy yourself. And then Tim calls back to that in his final monologue. He says, I try to live every day as if I've deliberately come back to it. So he's now living life as if he's already gone through that one day and everything that's gone bad has gone bad and now he's going to enjoy it to the fullest extent. And I think that is a practical application. I mean, that is something we can do. We can go to work tomorrow and say, you know what? I'm going to imagine that I've already been through this day and it's gone crappily and and this is my redo day. And I'm worry-free, I'm stress-free, and I'm just going to I'm just going to let things go. And it's going to be extraordinary no matter what happens and I'm going to accept that. And so I do think that there is some practical application. It's all about changing your mindset. And honestly, it's all about finding what motivates each individual person and whatever gets you to that point is positive and is good. And I just, I thought it was really cool to actually see it played out in this movie and not just told to us because usually that's what happens. Um, and for this being a film, it's great to use the medium of film by showing us visually. Let's wrap up with the ending of the film to some extent. Um, I don't want to talk about the end end yet, but Tim goes back to visit his dad the night that his new child will be born. And this was almost a connecting point for me. It's after ping pong that they realize that this is going to be their last visit. And that's a very poignant scene when you can read that on Bill Nye's face, what's going on. And it made me think about what that would be like if you and the person that you loved both fully knew this was the last time that you were going to see each other. And how would we spend that time? Would it be, would it be easier or would it be harder to know that this was an actual goodbye? Because this is something that I don't think anybody ever really gets, even if someone is dying in the hospital um, and it's a slow process. You don't necessarily know that this will be the very last time that you're able to have a conversation or play this game of ping pong. So I wondered if you guys resonated with that scene at all. And specifically, what do you think, how do you think you would handle that in real life? Would you even want this power to be able to do this? Or would you prefer not to know? I don't handle death well. Um, I never have in movies. It's the one thing that 
will pretty much guarantee that I will cry. Um, it's just not something that I emotionally am great at processing. I don't think anybody can really say that they're fantastic at it. But for me, the death of anyone, I've cried at when people tell me somebody's died in their life and I never knew this person and I've cried for them. I'm just very empathetic when it comes to death. Um, I don't think that knowing necessarily it, it has the ability to cheapen um, a moment, but it also has the ability to add beauty to it and to score something like that. I think it's different. The fact that like, they know this is the end for them, but it's not the act. It's like, it's not the real end though. Like, it's just the last time they can have, like you said, it's the last time that they can have this conversation, but it's not like his dad just dies. Like technically it's been a while, but it's like one of those things where it's just like, it's that last known moment. So it's not, I guess to me, like, I don't see, I see their conversation as the final conversation, but at that point, do you start to look at death differently? Because unless you make some large change in your life, these people will always be accessible to you. So do you really value or does it devalue life and death for you at that point? Because like, if they decided to not have another child, he'd be able to go back and see his dad whenever he wanted for the rest of his life. So it's also like, at, at what point then does death actually hold that same meaning? Because it's not as finite for people like that. So I don't know. I, I can't answer that because I don't have that ability. Like I obviously, I don't try time travel to see people that have already passed on. So for me, it slightly kind of cheapens that because unless I make some large life decision that is altered sperm by sperm, like there's not really anything else that I can do that's going to, because I mean, if you really think about it, that's really the only thing that can change is the fact that this one sperm decided to hop on this one egg and that's what they base all of these like, okay, this is an immovable moment that we cannot go back and alter at this point. Aside from a child, there has not been a singular thing in their lives that has had an impact to where he's like, okay, I can't go back and change this or adjust this. So it really, it, ta- it takes away, I think, from the value of a life lived or a person mourned or a life celebrated, I think, at that point. The value of life is that it is finite. And when you have the ability to time travel and reset or to go back to moments and revisit those, it does cheapen it. And I think it prolongs the healthy thing that is a grieving process. There's something to be said, though, about knowing that a person is dying, which they knew that they knew that he had a terminal illness, you know, with this with this cancer. But at the same time, there's something there's something refreshing about being able to have a conclusion to be able to say, okay, I'm going to put this to bed now. And for for Tim, as you mentioned, Aaron, if they hadn't had that third child, it wouldn't have mattered. He could always go back and visit. And I think that's what made that moment for him to choose to have a third child so impactful because he was at that moment, he was losing something to gain something else. Whereas before that, he didn't have to make that choice. And I think that we don't have we're not making that choice directly. But when we choose to let someone go when they're on life support or when they are in their last moments of passing away, we're letting that go. But by working through the grieving process, we're choosing to attach ourselves to a new season, to a new moment where we're focused on something else. My dad is a fantastic example. For the longest time, he took care of his mom, who was just slowly dying as she got older. And I remember when she passed away, as after he went through that initial grieving period, you could feel this 
this weight come off of him because he didn't have that that weighted responsibility of saying, what am I going to, to do? And I had this conversation with him. I said, if you, as you're working through this, it seemed like your investment in, in her, in the last days of her life became who you were to an extent. And he recognized that and he started to see, you know what? I need to be able to let that go now that she's passed on, now that she's at peace. I need to be able to refocus and live my life. And so in that sense, he was choosing to gain something else at a loss for something. It, it's a cycle. It is that I'm not going to use the Lion King terminology there, but it is that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. Um, but there is a sense where you, where, <laughs> where one thing ends, but something else begins. And for Tim, I think in the scope of this narrative, he was cycling through that in a healthy way. I would not do that. I think it would, that prolongness, that ability to go back would yeah. really cheapen my ability to let someone that I deeply love go. And it would be, it would, it would hurt me because I would eventually have to say, I can't do this anymore. I agree. I think, can I just say like my, in the entire movie, which is full of, as we know, like great writing, fantastic cast. My favorite line in the entire film is right after they find out he's sick and his mom answers the door. And he's like, how are you? And she goes, I'm angry. Like, I am so uninterested in a life without your father. That is my absolute favorite line. Probably in almost any romantic comedy movie ever. I've actually said it myself on more than one occasion when discussing people like leaving and exiting lives. But it is so well written and so well delivered. Her face when she's just like, no, I'm freaking mad. Like, this is ridiculous. I am so not interested. I've lived my life with your father by my side. I am not interested in still being here. And the fact that she's a mother and she's saying that, that's to me very honest. Like people are like, oh no, your kids, like that all, you're showing me something on your face. Ah, yes, it's just so well done. And it's just like, you're a mother. You know that you've got kids, you've got grandkids. Everybody knows those things. And everybody's always like, oh, live for your babies and your baby's babies. But no, like your partner has been in your life longer than those children ever will be. And the fact that she just delivers this raw, beautiful line, like that line haunts me. I love it so much. We definitely both agree with you. Patrick was showing you his text to me while watching the movie where he sent me that line and a bunch of sad faces because it was moving him. And I agree wholeheartedly. It's one of my, probably my favorite line in the movie as well. Um, what I actually really love about it is that goes even further is how much it defines for us Tim's dad's impact on every single person in his life because right after that we get a moment with his uncle I guess it is is it Desmond the uncle Desmond yeah and Desmond says at your wet you know Desmond every time we've seen Desmond he's scatterbrained he is unable to, he's like forgetting things. I don't know if he's supposed to have Alzheimer's or what his specific um, concern is, but he's not. I think he's all, autistic. I think I he's think on he the might spectrum. Be. He's not seemingly always present in the conversation, but he is in this moment. And he says, at your wedding, he, meaning Tim's dad, said he loved me. That was probably the best day of my life. And this is the worst. And that comes pretty much on the heels of this line from his mother. And I was like, God, man, this man 
is truly beloved. Like, this is what you want out of your life. You, you, you know, this is what you want people to remember you as. You want people to feel this way about you when you're gone. Uh, and I and I thought that was just so well done in the writing, of course, to, to give us those emotions. With regards to the whether or not I would go revisit, I agree with you guys. It's very moving to me in the movie, and I think it is incredibly powerful the way we see it happen, and I think it makes sense. But one thing I took away from it was almost like, hey, you're showing me this thing, and I'm learning from it that by doing that, I'm not living in the moment. This is not allowing me to do that. It's letting me hang on and try to change things and try to impact things in my own way and have control, right? And so I think that this helps Tim as well to go on his journey and learn that it's you can you can enjoy your life and live your life without doing that. And I think for me, it shows me I don't want to ever be in a position where I feel like I need to go do this and I need to go back and visit my dad one last time. I want to make choices every single day in my life that allow me to feel comfortable no matter what happens that I have given that relationship my all in the here and now and in the present. And so that's really what I take out of it, even though I see it as so sweet, you know, in the context of the movie. Well, we will go ahead and move into our connecting points. This one's kind of fun because we all have something different, which is exciting. There are so many in this movie that you can choose from, and I'm anxious to hear about all of yours. So Aaron, would you kick us off with yours first? Sure. Um, I kind of spoke about it briefly, but I mean, it's really, this is actually probably the first one that we've all done where we, like, I looked at the other two, I looked at both of your guys' connecting points, and normally it's it's very obvious to me what most people's connecting points would be in a film. And I looked at all three of ours and all three of ours were very different. And they they all hit on completely different emotional undertones. And for me, the connecting point um, was Kit Kat getting in her accident and recognizing the toxicity that she had like let into her life and being able to go back with her brother and. I, I can only imagine what it's like to your brain to re-experience all those emotions backwards and forwards again, because when every time they come back to present day, they're fully aware of what has been changed in their lives because of what they, whatever they did differently back in the day. So it's like they like to watch her truly like, I, I don't even, I mean, it's rock bottom to a certain extent, like, when Rachel McAdams is like, yeah, she was drinking vodka and everybody else was drinking tea. And like, she came over and like that moment that she has with Desmond and she's just like, people of this world, the people of the world are mean. Like, it's just so disheartening to watch. You're literally like watching her light extinguished because she was just such a bright soul in the very beginning of the movie. And it's just such a beautiful journey to watch her go through. Like, even if you take the romance out, like the romance of her and Jay or the romance of her and whatever, Tommy or whatever his name is, um, like you, you just watch what toxic relationships and abuse of addictive substances can literally just diminish a person from the inside out. Somebody that loved to experience everything until she realized the pain of what experiencing everything did to her. 
And so there's this beauty in that moment with her and Desmond. And then there's beauty in watching her journey through recovery afterward before it even had to do with getting into a relationship with somebody else. And it's just, it's showing how small changes and big changes can, can all have a sizable impact in your life. And I think that's, there's so much beauty in that journey for her. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm really glad that you picked that because it is such an important part of this movie. And one of the things that sets it apart from anything else in the genre, really, that it doesn't have that kind of relationship that with this serious of a storyline, this dramatic of one and, and not overly dramatic in the sense of like played up, but realistically dramatic um, and with real life potential impact for people who go through this every day, like you said. So yeah, that's, that's great. Patrick, what about you? What did you come up with? The walk on the beach really stood out to me as a great period to the ending of the relationship between Tim and his dad. And I say period because a lot of times when we think about the end of a person's life, metaphorically, we think, oh, it's got to be an exclamation point. You want to make sure that it's significant. Seeing the fact that Tim and his dad get a chance one more time to experience that intimate walk on the beach to enjoy skipping rocks that they continued to do throughout their lives uh, as Tim was growing up. Being able to experience that from an audience standpoint and seeing how Tim got to re-experience that one more time, I felt like that was a fitting end to their relationship in terms of his physical connection to his dad. It was the moment that I think solidified their bond as father and son. I mean, not that their lives before that were bad, but there's really something beautiful about a father and son spending time together, doing something that they both enjoy, that they have common ground on. I want those moments with my son, and I fully admit that that's probably why it was my connecting point, because I could see Carson and I experiencing something similar to that where he looks back on his life and he says, you know what? The moments that I had with my dad look like this. They weren't about him coaching me to be a better soccer player or by doing all these things. It were about, it was about the quiet moments, the moments where he sat on my bed and he read to me or he, he played with me on the floor when, you know, I wanted to, you know, play with my Legos or he watched me as I made something out of construction paper. I want those moments to be valuable to my son because those moments, I they they have an impact on his life in, in that moment, but they also have an impact on others because of what I hope he's going to do with his family. And when I see that scene play out, I'd like to believe that Tim saw that as a way to echo into his children, to have those moments with them so that the legacy of his dad would live through him, even though he wouldn't be able to ever see him again, which is a healthy thing. He would be able to echo that legacy into them and then carry that tradition on. One thing that wasn't addressed was the fact that I think he has two daughters and a son. His son, when he turns 21, he'll have to have the conversation with him because I'm assuming that this will carry on. And I smell son... a sequel. <laughs> Do 
time and again is what they'll call it. <laughs> but I just I love the intimacy of that moment. I think it it's it's gentle. It's again a period that um seems to bring their story to a fitting conclusion and it doesn't need any more or any less. Well, I agree. Um that pick was tweeted back to me a couple of times in GIF format on Twitter when I posted that I was watching this movie for the podcast. Everybody seems to resonate with that, um, from a, at least men especially. And I mean, I did too. I immediately thought of those moments with my own dad. And my, my connecting point is very similar in vain to yours, Patrick. It's the wedding speeches. And I love this because of two things. I love that it scene starts off with comedy and Tim using his reversal of time in one of those mundane comedic moments to reverse Rory's awful speech over and over and over. It gets us laughing and giggling and kind of puts us in that lighthearted place. And I think that that is a very smart tactic before you drop something kind of really moving on us and and I like that a lot and so it sticks out to me because it's not this swelling forced build up a big emotional moment that's coming but then after that Tim's dad gives his speech and he's talking to Tim and he's not satisfied with it and he wants to redo his wedding toast and Tim's like no it's it was fine and he's like I I, I need this to be more than just fine And his toast is this. He says, later on, I may tell you about Tim's many failings as a man and as a table tennis player. But important first is to say that one big thing. I've only loved three men in my life. My dad was a frosty bugger, so that only leaves dear Uncle Desmond, B.B. King, obviously, and this young man here. I'd only give one piece of advice to anyone marrying. We're all quite similar in the end. We all get old and tell the same tales too many times, but try and marry someone kind. And this is a kind man with a good heart. I'm not particularly proud of many things in my life, but I am very proud to be the father of my son. And that, that last line, um, particularly is very moving, um, as a father and And it gets to me. It gets to me as a dad, and it gets to me as a son, too. And I think maybe even more so as a son, because there are a lot of words as a man that we want to hear from our parents and our coworkers and our loved ones, etc. But I really believe that for most men, hearing their dad tell them that he's proud of them ranks Right up there is as much as anything that you could hear, to be honest. And uh, and this captures it perfectly in a very condensed, simple way. Uh, it's, it's so touching. It is perfectly acted. Brought me to tears then, obviously bringing me to tears now. Um, and, and it just, it really, I think, started showing the depth of connection between Tim and his dad that we would then continue to, to go on that journey with them from this point forward as they begin to really show a closeness leading up to the bookend of this, which would be Patrick's scene, um, which is so amazing. So I, this is the best advice ever. Try and marry someone kind. There's a million things you could want in a person. 
start with kindness um, and go from there. And, you know, if my dad is proud of me, I will be satisfied. And I know that I love it when I'm proud of my son. I know that that's important to him. And this reminds me that I've got to be able to tell him that as well. So that was mine. Well, and if Bill Nighy can be the one to tell you that he's proud of you, that's a bonus right there. Double dose of (laughs) You better be able to give a speech at my wedding. That's all I'm going to say. Seriously. We'll give him a call. We'll say, hey, we've got this Aaron. She's a 2.0. She needs you at the wedding. Heck yes, I am. (laughs) And she is kind. And she is kind. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) That's a wrap for this episode of Feelin' Film. For our patrons, just behind this episode, we are bringing you some fun bonus content discussing why we love rom-coms. And then in just a few days, Erin 2.0 makes her illustrious return to join us for our conversation on When Harry Met Sally. Speaking of donors... One of the greatest films of all time. You know it. You absolutely know it. It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Yeah. If you don't like it, Erin 1.0, you can just... You're right. I know you're right. (laughs) And if you've seen it, then you get it. If you don't, you got to listen and watch. Exactly. Maybe Aaron should be a listener on Aaron One Point should be a listener on this one. I don't think you've seen it. Have you? Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, what? Okay. Listen, when Patrick and I were talking about this, oh, oh, oh gosh, I'm getting the, the, the eye. The stink eye. She's I'm getting the, the LASIK eye even. Um, <laughs> I can't rec- I can't recall it. So I remember well, all of the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan joints. Re- you have to recall. Well, it's not Tom Hanks. I know. The, That's what I'm saying. Like, I remember Billy those. But like... the moment he said Billy Crystal, I was like, nah. I, you know, I remember City Slickers, but I don't think mm-hmm. this is City. Okay, first of all, Princess Bride. Um, but well, I mean, yeah, but like that's Billy a supporting Chris, role. Oh my goodness, Patrick, why are oh, you friends no. with him? I don't know. Oh no, what? I mean, just... he's a comedy guy, guy. Like, <laughs> come on, you know me. Anyway, I'm gonna watch this movie. I'm excited to watch this movie, and yeah, we'll go from there. <laughs> Listeners, I regret to inform you the death of one of our hosts, Aaron 1.0, <laughs> slaughtered in his infancy. Wow. <laughs> Can we go back in time? To where? We yeah, I was like, how it. about about time you watched it? <laughs> <laughs> There's the pun. I was there. It is. So much. Yeah, it's about time you got around to watching that. I can guarantee you that this movie would not exist without When Harry Met Sally. Most romantic comedies would not exist without When Harry Met Sally. It's it's a it's a treat. <laughs> My heart hurts so much right now. My heart hurts. <laughs> we'll try I to admit that Sally, before Sunday. Okay. You are. It took me years to admit it, but I am Sally, and the fact that you have not watched my movie is heartbreaking. <laughs> I'm gonna be 30 someday. <laughs> this is so good. This is so good. Carrie Fisher's in you're it dead too. To me. You're dead to me until you watch it. That's it. I'm I'm, I'm throwing down the hammer. You're dead well, to you have a few. It. You have a few days to become undead. Like Jesus, yep. in three Speaking days, of, I will raise from the... You better raise from the rock. Well, we have four days. <laughs> Speaking of undead, uh, we're going to be covering Zombieland and its sequel here next month. Good, good plan. And, and nice. just, yeah. <laughs> both of which I haven't seen, so that's a blind spot for me. Obviously, I haven't seen the second one because it hasn't come out yet, but this will be a first-time watch for the first one. But uh, to celebrate that, the patrons are going to get a chance to vote on zombie-centric movies for the month of October for us to talk about. And the five that are included in that poll will be 28 Days Later, 
Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 remake, I Am Legend, The Crazies, a 2010 remake, and Resident Evil. If you're interested in supporting the show, being a part of the voting process, or want to get some fun swag like a cool t-shirt, you can find out more at patreon.com slash feelingfilm. Aaron 1.0, Aaron 2.0, thank you guys for a great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.